This is Laura Marianne Gonzalez, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, welcome back to another fine episode of Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. So happy to be here. The water is great. It really is very, uh, you know, lukewarm, almost tepid, you might say. It's like body temperature, like uh, one of those sensory deprivation tanks. I I feel nothing. I feel feel absolutely (laughs) nothing right now. Hey, Ben, who's on the show today? This is awesome. We have Laura Marians Gonzalez, who is just wonderful and fun to talk to. And she's been on the show before. I believe you interviewed her. Mm-hmm. But she talks extensively about the series, the uh, Amazon Prime series, Dead Ringers, mm-hmm. which is of a special interest to me because the original movie, Dead Ringers, definitely in my top five of all time. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And she actually talks about stuff from that movie that I have never noticed. And if you told me I've watched that movie a hundred times, I would believe you. Hmm. Wow. Well, I've been watching uh, the series and Rachel Weiss is uh, fantastic. She's really, really great. Also, uh, we have to give credit to Jody Lee Leipz, who, oh, of who course. shot yeah. the pilot. And I think he shot the first two episodes and Laura shot the back four. And it looks amazing. It is a gorgeous show. It's uh, not for the squeamish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Jody's really talented. It, Laura's really talented. It's a great looking show. And, uh, and, and can I just say, yeah, she is a fun person to talk to. She's full of information. She's got great energy. She's uh, I definitely she, felt she, that when we interviewed her last time. I, th- I thought it was just, great. It was, it was great. Just, hanging out just with her. a fascinating. She's like someone you, you just want to hang out with her. She's just so cool and interesting and has a great sense of humor. And uh, and easy and this, to talk to. What she what she did on the show is really something, and I can't recommend the show highly enough. So check it out. All right, Ben. So we're going to get into the interview in just a few minutes. But uh, first up is our close focus. It's a busy week. Lots going on. What did you want to yak about uh, regarding the uh, state of the state of the industry and the world? Well, it's almost like a roundup of mergers and just institutions shutting down. Mm. So. One of the big ones uh, this week was BuzzFeed, which Mm. is mostly news at this point. But BuzzFeed, you know, was sort of a pioneer in clickbait, really, more than anything. BuzzFeed just shuttered, gone, completely gone. Yeah, Uh, and and they were a real high flyer. They bought up all this expensive real estate in Hollywood right next to the Academy building. They, you know, they They had a studio that was like on Coenga, I think. I used to pass it a lot. About the most expensive real estate that you can get near there. They bought this like or they they leased and what is this huge stretch of land there between Coenga and La Brea and they built a bunch of different things. It it, it was crazy. So anyway, yeah, or, or Coenga and Highland. Yeah, that's what it was. Then I feel like this is kind of related, but Vice News declared bankruptcy. And Vice was also one of the like high flying, uh, you know. Oh, absolutely. Huge, we're in your face. Wh- we're Vice. Yeah. We're not traditional news. They, they used to say things like, oh, we're going to take over traditional news. We're going to be that we're the future. and We're not that old stodgy stuff. And now BuzzFeed, who was also, you know, really had the attitude about like, oh, we're here and we're, we're taking over. Both of these news, these alternative news organizations shuddered crazy. I mean, I'm not dancing on anyone's grave here. I just thought it was kind of nuts. 
it is kind and, of nuts because you know it seemed like if there was a time that that was going to happen too it seems like it would have happened ages ago not right now it's just yeah. it, the timing of that seems you know unexpected perhaps at least and, from an outsider view and then bob Iger announced that two streaming services does this sound familiar at all to you <laughs> two streaming services might be merging and uh, to which you say you mean discovery and hbo max and they're going to be called max to which i say Nay, the, the two services that are going to be merging are going to be Disney Plus and Hulu. Well, now, yeah, they are Disney both has owned, owned Hulu for yeah, some time. Yeah. So it wasn't a new thing. It's more that Hulu was like tended to be more adult stuff. They would put content from FX. You'd watch stuff like The Old Man on Hulu. And, you know, Disney Plus obviously is more family fair or, you know, it's got your Star Wars and your Marvels and all that stuff. But it's more fun for the whole family, even um, National Geographic, which is also part of Disney Plus. And I guess they're just going to bring Hulu into Disney Plus or make a new app. And it's a pattern that we're seeing, and plus the HBO Max Discovery situation, paint a weird picture of, of streaming in flux. And without, uh, without, without going into too much detail, I, I went and marched with my friend Bob DeRosa and Brian Bradley at the Writers Guild strike. I went to CBS Radford Studios and uh, held a sign and walked around in a circle. And most people honked and held a, a supportive yeah. fist out, out the air. Some people pulled over and like yelled stuff at us. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Why would you yell at people who are on like, what's the point? Even if you're, you know, uh, the president of the AMPTP, why would you yell at someone who's who's just like giving up their free time because they believe in something, but whatever, cool, pull over and yell at us, great. Um, ben, I mean, I think what, Radford's about a 15 minute drive from your place? Uh, if that, well, it, it's a it's a walk from Bob's place. So we met <laughs> so, at Bob's place So you place guys and went to the easiest there. place you could pick it. You didn't like, you know, oh, go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's like, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of places all over town where there's, you know, yeah, things I, are going I, on. I, I mean, like but for, you, for you those who understand so. LA yeah. uh, real estate, uh, I'm in the Valley. So, you know, the worst one I could go to might be Fox, I don't know. Yeah, Sony. yeah definitely. Ooh, um, yeah. Uh, not not worst in terms of a bad place, just the longest drive. The longest drive, yeah. But even, uh, even though it's CBS only like Rod eight miles, but yes. CBS <laughs> Radford's very close. But I mean, like the WGA has a big presence there. But talking to uh, you know some of the writers on that line, so much of what they're talking about is streaming. Mm. It, it has to do with streaming. Now you know Vice wasn't technically streaming because it was kind of a web 2.0 character i think they you would say as was buzzfeed but all of these organizations that we're talking about were uh, benefiting from the economy of growth it was a growth economy so all the streamers netflix notoriously was more obsessed with growth than profit meaning they wanted more subscribers and it didn't matter if they were making profit but after a certain number of years their investors were like hey yeah. we'd like some money now please and they were like uh let me check uh it's not in this pocket uh uh, uh. <laughs> in the in the case of vice uh, i think the number is 834 million in debt it's a little how bit. how do you i mean my brain cannot comprehend how a company could stay operating at a deficit like that but you know yeah these are big media companies that are probably taking out huge loans to continue operation and uh you know i i don't understand necessarily the economics of an organization like vice or like buzzfeed i will say that uh as we say legacy media companies your your cbs's your mm. ABCs. Your ABCs, yeah. like they, they keep on ticking, but there's a difference between entertainment news, like legacy media, the way that it's been done for decades, almost a century, really, and technology companies, which 
they're all about traffic and engagements and you know at a certain point they turned a corner and it was like no you got to make money and there was I, and a, there I was a lot know, of boast- all- yeah I, I i don't i don't mean to come off here as uh, as glib but yeah there was a lot of boastful claims at a buzzfeed they re- they really kind of thumbed their nose at all the traditional players and were like you know we're here and we're we're taking over and they bought expensive real estate they put up a bunch of banners and basically said like hey you know what we're doing is the future but I guess if you can't figure out a way to to really monetize and pay your bills, like if you can't figure out the ways to, you know, keep the checkbook balanced, it doesn't really matter what sort of boastful claims you make. And it seems to me like I know that it's been years now. It's probably been, you know, 10, 12, 14 years or something like that for something like BuzzFeed. But man, it's uh, I thought that when you spend that kind of money, when you grow like that, you're in it for the long for the long haul. And clearly they weren't. Clearly they're yeah. And oh and Vice announced, yes, their their final broadcast for their flagship program, uh Vice News Tonight, will be on May twenty fifth. That's it. Oh my God. Okay. That's 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 nuts. So this actually leads me to bring something up that I think is maybe worth people checking out if you're interested in this a little bit more. Is there's a book that recently came out called Traffic by Ben Smith. And I've heard Ben Smith interviewed on several podcasts. And basically the subhead is genius rivalry and delusion in the building billion dollar race to go viral hmm. and it's about all of these companies and I've heard, and like one of the things that I, I this is definitely one of his talking points because I think it gets a cheap laugh because it has the word boob in it but he, he talks about how like all of those companies that were growing and making all this money and one of them was Huffington Post now hmm. HuffPo and they were all talking about how they were going to redefine how it was all done and HuffPo was like claiming all of this traffic for their news stuff when a lot of their news was simply aggregated from other news sites but the thing that was really driving their traffic was celebrity side boob. True story. Wow. And, or, or true according <laughs> to Ben Smith. I don't know. I, I haven't looked at the analytics. Uh, and if you showed me the analytics, I wouldn't know what the hell I was looking at anyway. Interesting. But uh, yeah, yeah it, it's very interesting. And I think it kind of charts the, the rise and the decline of those kinds of sites. Now, how is this related to all these streaming services? I feel like the streaming services have been coming along and saying, we're going to redefine how you watch television. And to a great degree, they actually have. Uh, I don't use my DVR really at all. I keep thinking about cutting the cord, probably will pretty soon. I know plenty of people who have, but the streamers, and this is coming out from the strike, have their own economic woes in that they have not been nearly as profitable and they haven't converted like they didn't convert everyone over i my prediction is that we're going to see bundles for streaming like we've had bundles for cable for 40 years and we're just going to start seeing like okay like i want to get this bundle or that bundle or maybe you can create your own bundle or whatever hey pick pick five and pay one fee and you'll get it all because streaming i think for people like us who deal with technology on a regular basis not a big deal but i think for you know a lot of people who aren't that actively into the nut meat of how this shit works uh it can get confusing and weird and also it can get really expensive you're like "Ooh, i'd like the criterion channel Ooh, i'd like arrow video <laughs> you, would you like my my prediction on what's going to happen here uh Please. I, I, not only will there be some consolidation but these very low monthly prices that people are paying i think you're going to start seeing those start creeping up here pretty quick and before well, you they're know going it, to add a lot of them are going to add supported there if you want to have a reasonable fee you're going to be watching ads. If you want to have no ads, plan on your your dollars going up significantly into the future. Okay, so here's a million dollar idea. I'm not even joking. A multi-million dollar idea for anyone listening to us. DVR for streaming services. Someone needs to make a DVR that you put into your Roku or whatever, and it buffers and gets rid of all the commercials. And 
the latest be the game changer the latest roku has uh when you buy a roku they actually now give you sling they give you a little bit of free sling service sling is sort mm-hmm. of like that it's sort of like a, a a dvr type like a cloud-based dvr basically so they give you this but it's only a little sample but they've disabled any sort of fast forward rewind anything yeah, when I'm a commercial is playing. somebody makes so, like a physical yeah. device that you put between your television and your you know between your roku and you know and, whatever yeah. and, and then it becomes and, your dvr yeah i yeah. know it, it, it's a thing well i'm just going to do a deep tease but my uh my short end this week fits right into all of this stuff and it very much fits oh, into the, to the technology thing so i'll leave it there why don't we get to the interview yeah let's go to the interview with laura let's do it The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are here today uh, with returning champion, Laura Marians Gonzalez. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. For for coming back. Yeah, it's good good to be here again. So you shot the bulk of the new series that's on Amazon Prime, Dead Ringers. The pilot, I think, was shot by Jody Lee Leipz, who we've had on the show before. And I told you off mic... But Dead Ringers is honestly one of my all-time favorite movies. uh, Cronenberg is just a gem. And that movie, to me, is the Cronenbergiest Cronenberg movie that ever Cronenberged. And and it's so good. It was shot by uh, The Empire Strikes Back, Peter Sushitsky. And was also the subject of a lot of visual effects conversations at the time because of the way it used twinning shots with Jeremy Irons, having Jeremy Irons play uh, Beverly and Elliot Mantle as twins, who, because of his amazing performance, you could tell if you were looking at Beverly or Elliot any moment. And I have to say, with the new Dead Ringers show, Rachel Weiss has accomplished the same thing. But I'm wondering, as a cinematographer, let, let's kind of get into it. But I kind of want to start with the twinning shots. How did you do it? How did the tech? I mean, obviously, the technology is billions of miles ahead of where it was in 1987, I think, when they made Dead Ringers came out in 1988. I remember the night I saw it in the theater. I could talk. I could talk all night about that. Well, little known fact, Rachel has a twin. So no, no. Uh, sometimes they do that. Like Linda Hamilton's uh, twin sister twinned her in some shots in Terminator 2 and stuff. That was like, I know when I was doing research on this, I was like, that is so cool to have like a secret twin and then be an actor and be like, oh, no big deal. (laughs) And yeah, I think what wasn't she her like stunt double or something or I think she they were were stunt doubles, but also there were times when the T-1000 was pretending to be Sarah Connor and it was really her sister. So cool. Um, No, no. I mean, how did we do the twinning? Oddly enough even though the technology has come a long way since Dead Ringers, we used a motion control. Oh, really? Um, yeah, straight up like one of the, just the OG like motion control systems, because obviously there's variations in, in that, but we how, used- how, how O was the OG? How, what? How, uh, like oh. floppy disks, you know, like <laughs> floppy. <laughs> was it, was like it there really? Was literally floppy disks on. You're not joking? There were f- actual floppy disks? Yes, there were oh my God. floppy disks involved. <laughs> But yeah, no, we had an amazing motion control guy who was with us every day. Don Don Canfield was our motion control technician. And anytime there's twinning, pretty much there's exceptions for sure in the show. But for the most part, I would say like 90% of the time we're using motion control. And that's wow. for a lot of reasons. It's not just for camera. It's for all of the departments. You know, it's for like for sound, obviously, and for playback and for VTR and for lighting. So if there's any sort of lighting transition happening, 
everyone's able to tap into the motion control and have uh, the take be repeatable. Now, does that slow you down at all when you're shooting? Or is that like, are we at a point now with it where it's, um, I don't want to say plug and play, but it's like as easy to move around as say a camera dolly, just for For motion control, setup, reset, moving it? Not a lot. I mean, obviously you you had to find a good source of floppy drives. So, you know, (laughs) floppy disks. No, it's, it's interesting. It's like, it's cool to hear people's reaction to the show because when the twinning is done, it's like some things are very simple. And I think the, you know, the style of the show is kind of minimal and austere and like it leads to like not very complicated camera moves for the sake of moving the camera. It's all very intentional. And so that leads to like very kind of elegant, simple twinning. And I think we went with the style first and then when twinning came into it, it kind of fit, you know, it it made it achievable to do in like a, a way that worked within our world that we we're creating. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, yeah. and when you hear people talking about some of the twinning that happens, that looks very easy. It's actually, it's more complicated than it looks, you know? It's precision work. Like it's yeah. not, it's not something that you can just set the camera up and just figure it out and post. Yeah, like every every single twinning scene in the show was talked about beforehand. There's not a lot of spontaneity in twinning. You know, it's not yeah. like, you know, we, we did come up with things on the day and our VFX supervisor, Eric Pasquarelli, who had just done I Know This Much Is True with Jody. With Jody. Yeah. So like they obviously came with this wealth of knowledge and experience about it. And so we had that going for us. But that's all to say, like if on the day we wanted some more touching or some more interaction eric was always there anytime we had a twinning shot were you using body doubles a lot for that kind of stuff oh yeah there's like an incredible double named kitty hawthorne she was incredible because it's complicated for the double as i'm sure you know it's like they'll they'll rehearse both sides yeah like when we would rehearse, Rachel would rehearse whichever twin she would want to start with, which was usually Elliot, who's like the more like physically dominant twin. Mm. And she would rehearse both sides just to give Kitty like what she was going to do on side B. And then we do side A and Kitty would perform side B, the other twin side. And she would do it in a way that Rachel had done it in the rehearsal. And then Obviously, she needed to know both, just like Rachel did. She needed to know Elliot's dialogue and Beverly's dialogue. Then when Rachel went to change into the B side of the twinning, Kitty would perform the A side, but she would remember all of the takes and all the different yeah, things. Yeah, she'd have that- to like hit the exact timing of the dialogue. It's not just knowing the dialogue. She would have to perform it exactly the way Rachel Weiss had performed it. Well, she would mime it, so... Her dialogue isn't said on the B side. Rachel has an earbud in and she's listening to herself. So she's kind of acting against herself, against her audio performance with Kitty miming the performance, which was kind of surreal to watch on set, to be honest. You know, the psychology behind twinning is is really interesting because it's sort of like the ultimate movie magic where where you really see all the craft of filmmaking like happening in real time, if that makes sense. You see an actor's subtle shift in performance in real time. It's just a really interesting like cinematic tool. The performance is so strong, you completely forget that it's one person. At least I, oh, I did. Cool. I did just there. You know, before Rachel was even in hair and makeup at the beginning of the day, I would know if she was Rachel... Elliot or Beverly, because all three of them were so different. 
There was one scene in episode three that Karina Evans and I really wanted to get a twinning shot. We called it like the Bella Vive or something because it was Beverly, Elliot, and Genevieve. And we really wanted to get a twinning shot and we had to like reverse engineer the blocking. But it, we basically like came up with like a mathematical equation to to figure out the blocking oh, to God. get the twinning. Um, <laughs> and then it started raining and we didn't get it, which was. Oh, Jesus I Christ. I know, I know. So it's like. I don't know. It's just, honestly, it was like such a fun part of this experience. And, you know, it was definitely an exercise in like restraint because you want to control yourself from getting greedy when it comes to twinning because it's so gratifying technically, you know? Yeah, it's a magic trick. Every shot is a magic trick. And it's like a magic trick that as a viewer, I forget I'm watching. Like, I just get sucked into the story. And and Rachel Weisz, much like Jeremy Irons in the movie, you look at her, you know, based on just her physical appearance, her facial expression, her posture, you're like, that's Elliot or that's Beverly. There's no question who you're looking at shot to shot. And that was the same thing with the Cronenberg movie. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just an amazing trick that you're pulling off there. Yeah, and I wonder, and we talked about this while we're making it, if it was like, if it's going to be one of the last shows that are shot this way or last projects shot this way, like in, in the old school, like motion control way. I hope not. I mean, there's there's definitely reasons to do it that way and like not do face replacement and not do deep fake. I mean, I think it's like a really good argument against that because the actor's still performing and they want to be yeah. the person. They don't want just to have a face slapped on them and it's really eerie and like cringy to even think about doing twinning that way but I think you know there's examples of it done really well like social network obviously is like face replacement and when you really study that film in that way you see how you know the character that's foregrounded is the only one that's ever talking and the other one's just like out of focus in the background so they did it really well I don't know I'm just like I'm a big fan of motion control and doing things technically in camera. I just like love it. I'm with you. I hope that we stay using motion control kind of stuff. Or, I mean, if you're not using motion control, at least use real actors and have the actors do the twinning. Like, it doesn't matter if you're doing it on a green screen and compositing them later or something. But So one thing that I, that I kept wondering when I was watching it was sometimes in the twinning shot, there'd be like a subtle camera move that you would do like just to keep people in frame because they moved a little bit to the left or right. And I was wondering if that was something you did on set with motion control or if that was something where you filmed it a little wider and did the pan and post because obviously it would be easier to do a twinning shot. You can do more twinning shots, I'm assuming, if the camera's just locked dead down and, you can, and you're not moving it at all. Sure. No, no, every time the camera pans or tilts in the show is, is on motion control. So, I mean, do you have like an operator operating it? It's recording their body movement as they operate it. And then it just repeats that identically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In our case, you know, zooming, focus, all of those things are recorded and then repeatable. And then what's crazy is like, you know, after you do those takes, you have to review it with the director and then they choose the A side, you know, and then they're and then you're locked into the blocking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The editor doesn't get to look at the other takes on those at all. No, but also you don't get to change it. You know how many times like a blocking can change when you go in for coverage. You could just change things as you go. But it's like this. No, early on, you're you're kind of locked into what you commit to. 
that's interesting. And like, you know, I've obviously read a lot about motion control stuff. I've been on set for a little bit of that kind of stuff, but I have never personally used it. And I always wonder, like, is it that dependable or is the VFX soup having to go in and fudge stuff because the servo didn't exactly do exactly the way it was supposed to do? Also, like in the, the movie Dead Ringers, if you look at the behind the scenes, the motion control sounds like a helicopter going <laughs> off in the background. So so does this motion control, is it is it quiet enough that you can get good sound takes or do you need to loop that stuff later? It was quiet. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't sound like anything. Um, oh, good, good, good. And I'm glad that you're a fan of the film. I mean, I... I feel like the show is so different. I mean, it became very clear even when I was reading the scripts that it wasn't like a remake. It was it was definitely its its own thing and just I mean, obviously switching the genders switches the narrative a lot, I think in this case. I was talking to my wife about this because we watched it together and there's something interesting about just the phenomenology of this idea because it's based on a true story that happened in the 50s. And Cronenberg right. updated it and took like obviously massive liberties and fictionalized it, changed their names and everything on his version in the 80s. And now you have this, which stands on its own. You don't need to go. You don't, Obviously, I never read the book that Dead Ringers was based on. I don't really know about the real guys, but this is its own standalone thing with its own story. But it's kind of standing on sort of the shoulders of what Cronenberg did without without you needing to watch it, you know, and, and it's uh, an interesting evolution of that idea that starts with, uh, you know, <laughs> basically two drug addled doctors in the 1950s. Yeah, no, I, I that's a really good way to put it. So I think because obviously it's longer, too, it's able to go into so many different issues and like, you know, the dehumanizing uh, way that Western medicine treats childbirth and like also just an assault of like eons of the duality of women archetypes and like one, you know, having to be maternal or having to be career driven. So it's like it definitely goes into complicated issues, which is what really drew me to the project. Um Mm. Yeah, so like we definitely talked about the original while we're making it, and there's definitely nods. There's some really obscure Easter eggs, like, and I think some things like nobody would know. Like, and there are like little things that I would do just, I'm like, if there was like a big, big Cronenberg geek, they would get this. But like, for example, in the finale episode, Beverly is sort of making a speech at this big gala, and that that happens in the film. And at, at the table, where Genevieve's sitting, there's two candles. <laughs> it's like such a uh-huh. small thing. But I was like, we have to have two long candles at that table. Because it felt so weird in the film. Like, everything seemed so perfectly designed. And then it always felt weird to me when I was watching the film. There was like two candles on their table. And so, anyway, I put two candles so funny. on that table. Again, I've seen that movie hundreds of times. I've never noticed the candles. I mean, that's such a <laughs> such a small, dorky thing. But um, No, that's, that's awesome, though. And then obviously like the red scrubs and then um, the red scrubs to me. I mean, like it feels a little bit like this in the movie. They almost feel like they're in a weird religion. Like it almost looks like a religious. That's what it feels so dreamlike. It's like they're bathed in. It's like there's like bluish light, but they're or backlight or something. And they're just wearing these red robes that, you know, kind of look like they look more religious than medical in the movie. And in this, they you went more medical with like they look functionally medical. Do they? Because oh, I felt like they were very like very fashiony. Um, they're beautiful. But but red, which I feel like might 
in both instances work a little bit against the point of scrubs because you wouldn't really be able to see if they had blood on them. But, you know. Well, also their gloves are red latex, which is like yeah. so awesome. And, and we like. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's striking. It's such a striking image. But in the in that operating room, there's also a nod to the original that I wanted to do. And I worked with Aaron McGill, our production designer, to kind of because that that space is obviously like one of our biggest nods to the original and how there's like an observational room and you know people can watch and it's like very much what was set up in the original and I don't know if you remember in there was like this really really beautiful light fixture in the original that almost looked like a like a rice paper octagonal massive fixture over the operating table and and for me in the operating room I had Aaron and the construction team basically do like an octagonal oculus in that room just to sort of give a nod to the shape of the original lamp or light fixture in the original film but like it's not there's no fixture there it's just more of like an oculus with the same shape hmm so i always like to talk to people you know because like some dps will shoot the entirety of a series now and some dps will do sort of what you did which is you didn't really tag team it's uh jody shot episodes one and two and you shot the rest how does that collaboration work between the two of you? And were you like, were you in the conversation when they were doing episode one? Like, was there, were you consulted or anything? Did you know at the beginning that you were going to be taking it over and doing uh, what the back four? Yeah. So when I interviewed for the show and my first conversation with Sean and Alice, they told me that Jody would be shooting the first block. And I was super excited. I mean, cause I think that's one of the benefits of working in TV is like it allows us to work with peers that we admire and respect. Yeah. You know, Jody's amazing. He's, his work is so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had always been a big admirer of his and like, you know, you just don't get that opportunity as a DP to like work with other DPs. Yeah. So I was really excited about the ability to like craft such an artistic thing with him. We knew that the show was going to evolve visually. Every episode of the show would have like a slightly different look. So the style would evolve slightly, but it was always going to be grounded in one world. Yeah, there's like a restraint to the color palette and even the brightest bright and the darkest dark felt very like very constrained. Yeah, and that that was very much something that, you know, I think Jody was so amazing at establishing um, in the first couple episodes and he was just really generous and cool and had a lot of fun just like being there when he was working and it was great working with him especially also because it was in New York and I'm LA based so like he had this incredible crew that he had worked with on multiple projects and we're all you know coming in and we're gonna we're gonna stay with the show which I benefited from so much you know and just had this incredible team with me. That's awesome. So I feel like I would be remiss to not ask you about something. And I love that we are going to make this following pivot from Dead Ringers to John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, which you also <laughs> shot. And I just thought it was a wonderful, wonderful show. How did you end up working on that? Uh, for those people who haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. It's very John Mulaney. Uh, it's very much his humor because it's got all these real kids in it. And there's kind of a kids show vibe about it. I, I'm just pure, personally very curious how you ended up on that because a lot of your work is, you know, a lot more intense than that. Yeah, that's a good question. It's actually like a dream show. I loved that show. That was 
so, so much fun to do. I don't know. I, I got the script and I am a big fan of like Sesame Street and Pee Wee's Playhouse and like all of the things that Mulaney wanted to satire, you know, because like the whole yeah. idea of it is like how twisted the kids shows we grew up watching were. And a lot of them were like just kind of had these like <laughs> random tangential like, you know, there were all these sort of messages, but like wrapped in these like kind of psychotic creators like ways yeah. of expressing them so i just loved it and and it was ambitious you know i think we shot for like 10 days that's it really yeah and reese thompson was the director and he and i just like we really really played and like let our imaginations run wild because we had every day we had like the setup you know so we'd have like john mulaney like sitting in the garden with the kids and then we would always have like a musical number because there's 10 I think there's 10 songs in the show because that's that was like what was so cool about those shows back then were like all the styles that were combined. And it was a true. I'm, I'm going through, you know, because my son's five. I'm watching. We watch some of the old ones and then we even the new ones, they still kind of are building on that stuff. Yeah. It's like yeah. to keep a kid's attention, you need variety. Yeah. And so yeah, there's a show called Storybots that he watches on Netflix. That's a, a great kids show, but it like uses every style ever. Or yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, like, it's a little older for him, but he's watched it. Yo Gabba Gabba was another show that was a lot like that. That was a great show for kids. Yeah, yeah. It's like the formula of keeping kids' attention and like having variety in order to do that is, is something that works. So like we just wanted to play with that. So we just went for it. And like we had an amazing production designer who like let us think about crazy things and do crazy things. And I don't know. I'm just like a huge fan of Henson and Frank Oz and... It was it was kind of like this whirlwind experience that was so much fun. The cast was amazing. The crew was amazing. We had like two stages going in New York and it was like one stage was just like where like kind of the Sesame Street sort of set was. And then we had another set next door where I was able to hang like 25 movers and have like a lighting designer basically be able to do anything I wanted when it came to shooting these numbers. So we had we had a lot of flexibility and then we just tried to make it as dynamic as possible. I'm, I'm surprised you've seen it. I, I actually love it. There's a couple songs from that show that I still sing often. <laughs> Plain plate of noodle with a little bit of butter is the one that we always reference. Like, it's just so funny. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and we, uh, our son isn't like that, but he has a cousin who is exactly like that. Uh, no, no, I, I love John Mulaney. The Sack Lunch Bunch was wonderful, but it, it's just, how do you, how did you end up in that? Because in, in that mix, because I feel like it's, you know, if you look at your filmography, it's kind of an outlier look wise, like as in terms of, it just doesn't look like any of your other work. I don't know. I think, I think I really sold myself and, or mm. I think my passion for that genre. And when I talked to Reese and we shared so many similar references and, you know, we're talking about Frank Oz and Henson and, you know, Sesame Street and Pee Wee's Playhouse. And like, just, we shared a lot of the same sensibilities. And I don't know. Mm. I mean, I think that's the fun part about being a DP is that at least like I hope to have a career that's not like pigeonholed in any particular genre or that I'm like hired for one specific style of things, but that I can shoot like multiple things and doing a musical that is kind of dark and has uh, 
you know, some dark themes happening, but is also appealing to kids is kind of a dream job for me. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it was, it That's was definitely awesome. like an amazing way to spend a couple months. And we had, we had a blast. Definitely a highlight, uh, a pandemic highlight, one that I've, uh, I've watched a month. I think it came out before the pandemic. No, no, it came out during the pandemic. Now that I'm I love the- White Lady, that song, White Lady. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my favorite. That song is just so beautiful. There's just some beautifully written songs. It's that show has so many like dark things happening. Like when that, like the crew member dies and yeah. like the kids are just like, <laughs> my call time was five and he was dead at five. <laughs> so much of his comedy was about his childhood. And I feel like his stand up, like he had that great bit about the stranger danger uh, assembly with JJ Bittenbinder. And it's the funniest thing ever. I mean, he's, he's such a great comedic voice and his new, uh, his new stand up special is awesome. Anyway, I'm not here to talk about that though, but I feel like this is a, a good note to end on. Firstly, obviously go to Amazon prime and watch, you know, binge dead ringers right now. Hopefully you're not <laughs> squeamish. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. My friend, Jason Collins, I don't know if you dealt with him, but he did the makeup effects or his company did the makeup effects. Oh yeah. Yeah. For yeah. It. No, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah, Jason's a really good friend of mine. He really He's is from awesome. the valley. The first day I, I met him, well, I was like, "You're from the valley, aren't you?" Because I can, I can yeah. spot a valley. <laughs> His office is. I could walk there from where I am right now. He did such an amazing job. Like, yeah, they, he won an Emmy for Pam and Tommy, and there's a birth scene in Bam, Pam and Tommy, but there's a lot of birth scenes in Dead Ringers, the whole lot. Um. <laughs> yeah, were you grossed out? I mean, after you've been there for the real thing, you kind of look at it and go like. nothing compares good yeah no it's 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 meant to do that it's meant to sort of like normalize it a little bit you know well cool well uh thank you so much i feel like i've used up (laughs) so much of your time i could talk i could seriously just give a ted talk on dead ringers five minutes from now i'm such a fan of that movie um so where can people find your work online if they are looking to see more of your stuff after they watch all of dead ringers by the way my website it's lmgdp.com also on instagram laura melody gonzalez cool well again thank you so much for coming back love dead ringers i I hope it wins a bunch of awards i hope it i hope it uh, knocks everyone up to the next level but uh it's just great work and it's great to see amazon prime doing uh i don't throw the word edgy around that easily but it's like stuff that's just got a real it's got a real edge to it it's it's really well done and uh, amazing work again so thank you very much thank you thank you it was so much fun to talk to you and great to see you again you too yeah That was Laura Mirian Gonzalez. Hey, thanks so much for coming on the show again. I'm sorry I wasn't there this time. I'm really glad You're that uh, you came back. Yeah, I know. I, I suck. But uh, but hopefully, <laughs> you know, round three, I'll be there. Anyway. Definitely next time for sure. Ben, guess what? What? Bill paying time. We got to pay some bills. We got to thank our fine friends over at Aerie. Came back and sponsored us again now for 2023. We're happy to have you back. Thanks so much for being a returning sponsor. They've got a really cool product that just came out called the ZMU4. Mm. It is a zoom control. ZMU4. Yes, the ZMU4. And it is a very clever modern take on the classic zoom control. So the way it typically works with, uh, you know, professional cinema lenses, you may, but most likely may not have a motor to control your zoom function. And if you do, it's not necessarily integrated into the lens. It is an add-on. It's an add-on. It's an extra piece. So in the old days, it was this thing that attached to the handle of your tripod and you could zoom in, you could zoom out, you could change the speed. Well, 
Aries come up with a modern version of the classic zoom control, and it's rugged, weather-resistant, ergonomically designed, and seamlessly transitions between wired and wireless configurations. Hmm. It's uh, unprecedented connectivity enables versatile, clutter-free camera builds and faster onset workflows. And actually, you know, John Fowler, friend of ours, friend of mine, he's the publisher of Film and Digital Times. He wrote the Area 35 book. You know, he's an ASC member. He's a fantastic resource out there. If you don't know John Fowler, it's definitely worth uh, looking up Film and Digital Times. Here's a direct quote from him, a little testimonial he, he gave. This is what John says. You will probably begin by attaching the ZMU4 to a tripod handle and connect the camera by cable. After marveling at the smooth moves and feathered end stops, you will hesitantly insert a radio module, disconnect the cable, and see how it runs wirelessly. You may never go back. You're a smooth operator, blissfully unencumbered by cables. Which, I gotta say, is about the highest praise you can give. If you are getting the, the same experience without a wire that you get with, that's incredible. And I gotta say, for people who are on jibs and all kinds of other uh, situations where the zoom control needs to be further away from the camera, uh, this uh, makes everyone's life easier. Which is very exciting. Airy ZMU4. I think I think Sade should score the uh, the commercial for it. Sade, why is that? Smooth operator. Smooth operator. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I'm not yeah. Sing. You just you you dated yourself terribly there. You're you're so Gen X right now. So. And I, I'm I'm okay being Gen X. And now short ends. So Ben, it is short end time. What is your obsession this week? What are you about? Well, I'm going to surprise you. Is it a podcast? It's a podcast. <laughs> it's a really good podcast, though. Uh, it was recommended to me by my frequent collaborator and co-writer, Bob DeRosa. The person you were uh, picketing with earlier. Who I was picketing with at uh, CBS Radford. And it's uh, a podcast from Deadline, mm. uh, you know, one of our uh, esteemed uh, trade Industry. publications. Yeah. And it's called Strike Talk. Mm. And it is co-hosted by Billy Ray and producer Todd Gardner. So Billy Ray... If you don't know who he is, I mean, look him up. He's a, a writer and a director, and he's done numerous things. My personal favorite is a film he made with Chris Cooper and Ryan Felipe called Breach. He also wrote and directed a movie called Shattered Glass. He's done tons of stuff, newer stuff, whatever. But he's been around for a long time, and he's it's mostly... Todd Garner interviewing Billy Ray and Billy Ray, who has been in leadership at the Writers Guild several times over the last several years and has an intimate relationship with like the AMPTP people who the Writers Guild is, are, are currently negotiating with. Like he knows them and he lays it out really plainly what the stakes of the strike are about and why the strike is happening. And if you don't understand the Writers Guild strike, check this out in plain English. It's actually, it's very informative. It's very smart. These guys are also kind of funny because they're old hats at doing this. And I think it's a, it's an awesome resource for anyone who, who wants to understand what's going on in the strike. Or if you say, what's a mini room? Or why are writers afraid of AI? Which like, as far as I can tell, and feel free writers to buffet me with corrections here. I don't think most of them are afraid that they're going to be replaced by chat GPT anytime soon. I think what they're afraid is producers are going to say, hey, you don't need to have the same size writer's room. Why don't you just use chat GPT to generate a bunch of ideas and then you can be the showrunner of the ideas created by the AI. I think that they're more afraid that people are going to use AI in a way that's shitty and uncreative and is going to create bad stuff. 
I mean, I, don't, I hate to overstate the obvious. If ChatGPT could create a script as good as anyone else, then all the writers would be out of work tomorrow. We still need writers, and ChatGPT can't do that. <laughs> like, this is my own editorializing. I don't think AI is going to ever replace writers. I think writers are going to use AI when they're writing to do research or pull up ideas or brainstorm or whatever. And I think that that's all completely a cromulent way to use it. But I think the fear is that, you know, someone at Netflix is going to get the bright idea of like, oh, uh, what if we just hire one good showrunner who and, and, and a writer's assistant who can run chat GPT all day long. But anyway, they've only done two episodes of it so far because the strike just started two weeks ago. Definitely worth a listen. We'll get you up to speed about what is going on. Hopefully the DGA won't have to do a podcast because like DGA is actively in negotiations and uh, ugh, this could be uh, this could be ugly. It's going to get ugly. Everyone's everyone's basically just saying like this strike is basically going to determine the forward trajectory of the entertainment business. And sort of what Billy Ray is saying is this strike is sort of going to determine whether or not people can make a living as writers at all in this world where we're, where CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars, freaking pay people a living wage. I think it's really interesting. And it, it goes to show a little bit about how out of touch some producers are. Certainly, uh, look, the, the same fear, uh, the same fear about chat GPT being able to replace a room full of writers is in many ways grounded in that same fear that I would hear from DPs when producers would say to them, why do we need to rent a camera package? We've got an iPhone. We're done. Yeah. And it's why like, why do we need a focus puller? This camera has autofocus. That's exactly right. And I think that the skills that you need to be a competent producer do not extend necessarily to being competent in knowing what the other departments do and how they do it. And I think the best producers do, of course, but it seems to me that like this fear is not unfounded because there are people who they're going to have to fight that battle and either say like, well, I guess we're not going to be working together or now I'm going to risk me having a job to explain to you why your belief, which is not based on fact, is going to cause great harm to what's going on. And, and writers are, you know, uh, understandably deathly afraid that they're going to have to now fight that battle too. It's not going to be, you know, a writer, an assistant and chat GPT. It's yeah. going to have to be your full complement that you need for whatever the type of show is that you're, that well, you're putting on. So. Well, I mean, like, again, I don't pretend to know what's going to happen, but you know, my educated guess is we're about to see a huge contraction in the amount of shows being made one way or the other. And the push that the WGA is basically not willing to give up on getting rid of mini rooms if they win that battle, which they might, I just think we'll end up having some fewer TV shows. But I don't I don't know, because they keep Billy Ray keeps talking about how, like, the budgets for the average TV show has gone up by 50 percent and the writer's pay has stayed the same over the last like 20 years. And so it's maybe stupid of me to think that, like, the writers are definitely not the biggest expense. And so it kind of makes sense for them to give the writers what they want. But I understand that when you got that kind of money, you don't want to give it to anybody. So they don't want to give money to writers. They don't want to give money to anybody. I don't know if you ever listened to the podcast Martini Shot with Rob Long, but Rob Long kind of leans conservative, isn't like rah-rah union, but he is in the Writers Guild. He's been a writer, you know, he was a writer on Cheers. That's how long he's been doing it. And he even did a podcast about how much he supports the strike. So, you know, I feel like it's... That's telling. 
for sure. It's it, it's yeah. I mean, like I I have yet to hear from a WGA writer who's like, screw this, I want to go back to work. It like they all want to go back to work, obviously, but they they know they're getting shafted by the streamers, and the streamers are obfuscating profits and a host of other things, and they're basically changing business practices for the worst. And even like the late night comedy shows, the AMPTP companies are trying to make that a day rate position. In other words, you're a comedy writer, you work on Monday, Tuesday, you don't know if you have a job. Like, what do you do? How do you pay the rent? That's, uh, yeah, that's that's crazy, especially considering those shows run for decades. Some, yeah, many, many decades. So, well, and also like, so you know, if you're a comedy ones. writer, it might take you a week or two to settle in and kind of get the groove of how to work with everybody. For and sure. if, if you have to fight day by day for your job, then, you know, they might just go through writers like crazy. Some of the shows will. Some won't. Some will. Anyway, uh, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? All right. So it's brand new. You may have come across this, but there's a new company called Telly. Not to be confused with the Telly Awards. Telly, okay. uh, their business model is that they're going to give you a free 4K television. Okay. Their other plan, their first rollout, is to give away a half million of these 55-inch 4K TVs absolutely for free, and you can use them to watch whatever you would like. Here's the catch. You knew there was a catch coming. The TV has a like a 55-inch top portion, and then has a smaller like nine inch diagonal strip along the bottom, which will constantly be showing you ads. What? Yep. It feels a little dystopian. It feels a little like Maniac. If you remember the Maniac series, which which I absolutely Uh, loved. It's like Minority Report. Yes, where you will constantly have ads down there. Now, I'm actually kind of excited about this because you can use that TV for whatever you want. And we are heading towards the world. Many people have prophesied this already, that television sets will cost a hundred bucks. And... I think that that's true. The the cost of I don't know how good the TV set is, but they've Telly has come out and said this is equivalent to a thousand dollar set that you'd buy at like a big box store. So a thousand dollars. So can you get that thing and just put a piece of black cloth tape across the strip at the bottom? I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I don't know how they prevent that. Or I'm thinking that there's going to be people who will get very clever with like spray paint or something. They are going to like, you know, customize the television set so they don't That's actually see- a good idea. Yeah. Another, that's uh, not a million dollar idea, but like make little vacuum form, like a little plate that goes over it. I think that this could absolutely be a thing or that maybe people will get those flat panel lifts that like extend out of a piece of furniture and they just won't extend it the last nine inches. The last nine inches will stay inside the cabinet and then you can see the rest of the screen above it. I, I don't really know how else, but I have a feeling that um, the it guy- sounds like something that would get laughed out of the room at Shark Tank. I am not going to bet against this, though, because okay. uh, the. Yeah, cut cut to a year from now, both of us have them. Well, anyway. uh, it could be because, uh, well, it's the brainchild of serial entrepreneur Ilya Posen, who's, you oh, know, he's never another, go against anyone named Ilya. That's exactly what I'm saying. So Ilya is the co-founder of Pluto TV. Il- Ilya Salkind, maybe. Uh, uh, yeah, I could, Ilya Kazan, some, you know, you never know. So. Yeah, blacklist, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but Ilya Posen, he and a co-founder named Tom Ryan launched, and Tom Ryan, he's the head of streaming for Paramount now. They, he's definitely done very well for himself, but they launched Pluto TV in 2014, which was completely the opposite of what everyone was saying. It was ad-supported. It was They were giving it away essentially uh, for free, and uh, I don't know if you've watched Pluto TV. I was actually watching it last night. I found that there was an IFC channel that I could watch a little I'm bit of non-expert in this as i have never once watched pluto tv ah, it's it's pretty interesting so anyway it's it's worth pluto tv through. no longer a planet 
<laughs> anyway, but Pluto TV sold to Viacom for $340 million. So who is laughing now? <laughs> uh, Ilya and Tom, who did great with it, they're laughing. And Ilya clearly sunk some of that money into telly. And after being completely dark for two years, they've just come out with this plan. And they may know something. Maybe there's some sort of anti-theft defeating. Maybe there's a camera involved. Maybe there's a bunch of data maybe oh, you have to I, go there. I, I absolutely wouldn't take a tv that had a camera pointed at me all the time that was free i i am sure but i'm that, just saying that like, sounds that sounds almost google-esque in its evilness it, you know i don't know there the details are murky we don't have all those details yet but that being said it would not surprise me if there is some sort of incentive for the nine inch ad displaying screen to constantly be visible. And I don't know how they, they do that, but uh, there's a lot of people out there who want a television set and nine, don't want to buy it. By how, nine I, inch by what? I By whatever the, the width of that thing is. I so think. if you have a 50 inch screen, it's, it's nine inches by 50 inches of advertising in your face all the time. Something like that. Yeah. So mm. I don't know. There was a picture of it I saw online, but I couldn't really tell. It didn't look quite that large. It looked like it was probably maybe six inches high, but I couldn't tell you. Anyway, but this is this is interesting. It's always interesting for me to see where sort of like big. Oh, and you know what? They're based in Sherman Oaks. They're right down the street from you. You could go like oh, knock, I can, knock I can on go over their door. And ask them some questions. You hey guys, could. we could. You know, maybe one free television, please. If if we ask them nicely, maybe uh, we can talk to someone in their PR department. Maybe they come on the show. Maybe we could see their TV. Maybe we could do especially this. We could after a, everything we just said. Exactly. 100%. I, I but you know, look, it's I. I'm interested. I'm very interested. And for a lot of people out there who don't want to have to buy a TV and are already putting a bunch of money every month in, into the streaming services this, this may really become a thing and maybe it's but the you only would still w- have to pay for the streaming services you're just getting a free television that's exactly right but guess what they use an over-the-air system to send you the ads so no matter even if you're not connected the ads are always going to be there <sighs> yeah anyway it's a it, it's really interesting it's this fusion of like old business models and new business models sort of coming together and also this dystopian you know sort of world uh, exactly like minority report or maniac that you know the advertising being omnipresent i'm interested i can't wait to see let's, what happens let's create an entertainment device that feels like the brainchild of franz kafka and philip k dick <laughs> There's there's a, there's a little bit of that in here for sure. Maybe 10%. Yeah. And anyway, so that's my obsession. And you know, what do you think about the the companies that are going to advertise that way? And it's going to be a, you know, a half million captive people, but it sounds like the plan is many, many more millions of these sets I mean, to go we, out there. I mean, we should definitely advertise on there. Cinematography podcast should be all over that. You know what? I, I think that there's a collab there that we haven't figured out yet, but I'm curious. Especially they're right, right down the street from you. We should we should go visit them. Should go hang out. I can <laughs> walk there. Hey, Ben, I think that just about does it for the show. Where can people find you? They want to track you down. You can go to benrock.com and you'll find everything you ever wanted to know about me. You could also look me up on Wikipedia. But if you wanted to like actually interact, all the links are there, my social medias and stuff. How about yourself, Philly? Where can people find you? You have a Wikipedia? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I'm on Wikipedia because I'm special. Go to go to Wikipedia and look me up. <laughs> uh, I don't. I, and, I, and I will say this. I did not write the Wikipedia entry. Whoa. Okay. I, I, I did uh, update the official website. That's the only thing I did, which is, mm-hmm. again, benrock.com. Once I got the benrock.com, I'm like, I need to put that up there. 
I've heard stories of celebrities punking each other by going into Wikipedia and like writing very insulting things. And then, you know, if somebody would like to go to my Wikipedia page and write insulting things, I'm actually okay with that. Oh, feel feel free. I'll probably (laughs) flag it or whatever you do on Wikipedia, but I'll, I'll get a good laugh out of it for a while. Nice. Ben, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Reach out to me if you want to build a studio, need some camera equipment. I'll tell you the Alexa 35 has been very popular. If you're looking for one of those, uh, hit us up. We, we know how to get them. All right. So, Ilya, who should we thank this week as opposed to every other week? And then Ben, ben Katz, copy, paste, copy, paste. Uh, let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, our editor, who has been chopping and slicing and dicing and making sure that we sound uh, relatively eloquent and succinct here. You know, thank people you. don't know this, but what Ben Katz does is he takes us and lays us down to quarter inch mag tape and then cuts it with a splicer and then re ingests it into the computer and releases it. It's a lot of extra work and it doesn't make it any better, but uh, it's really hard. <laughs> Uh, it sounds a little bit like we're going to shoot this digitally, but we're going to scan it out to film. And then we're going to re, you know, digitize if, that. If only we talked to uh, two that I can think of DPs that had done exactly that. And one of them was Oscar winner Greg Fraser. Just that, saying. That's just right. Saying. That's right. Yeah, so ahead, so our, our podcast is going to get, right. you know, infinitely better, but not really. And we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. figure out to get analog in here. It just somehow. has that warm analog feel. What we do is we output it to analog tape and then we press it to vinyl oh my god and then we recapture it from vinyl and it's a lot warmer oh no 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 then we put it on a wax cylinder we got this wax mm. cylinder spinning it's 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 incredible anyway it's very so- it's got a warmer sound <laughs> than this cold digital thing that we all do uh let's also thank alana cody producer showrunner alana cody who's making sure that uh we are you know, chock full oh. to the gills. With man, more, we've been uh, we've been working the last couple of weeks, last two three weeks. We've both done tons of interviews. I, I got to tell you, you know, Ben, it took me a while to get to the Dave Gribble episode, and I don't think we've talked about it, but I have to just throw this in right now. What a fantastic interview! What a great podcast! Holy crap! This is, this is like a little like you know patting ourselves on the back here, but boy, was that fun! And I'm really sorry that I was not part of that, but I listened to that interview, and and if anyone out there also skipped, you know, Dave Gribble didn't hear the Gribbs episode, you got to go back and listen to that. That one is. Excellent. It's really, really fun. Uh, let's thank uh, Kay Zalatrachi. Kay's uh, musicbykays.com. He made all the music that you heard in this episode and most every episode that you've ever heard of this show. And he also is a multi hyphenate. He does all kinds of things. If you need music, if you need something, look up musicbykays.com. CGI effects. If you need your film color graded. Yeah, this guy. And I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. He, he is great at all of these things. He's really great. It's insane. How does one person have so much talent? It's yeah, I don't get it. It boggles the mind because I'm actually only kind of good at like three things. That's right. And, really- and one of them is juggling and I'm not that great at it. You can ride the unicycle. No, I can't. I have oh. a unicycle. I've just never been able to ride it. Oh, I thought you rode it. Oh. No, I, I've tried. I, I can't do it either. All right. Yeah, well, it's, well, it's, it's, it's not easy. Well, Ben, now that we've uh, revealed our talents and lack of, you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.